Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. It's time for Midday Edition on KPBS. We're talking with one local author who draws from personal experience to write about the ways kids can cope with anxiety. I'm Jade Hindman. Here's to conversations that keep you informed, inspired, and make you think. Shining a spotlight on how full life can still be for kids dealing with mental health issues. Mental health concerns are not, you know, huge red flags that mean that a kid can't live a happy, great life. Plus, a tale of morality and murder takes the Old Globe stage as a comedy. And the La Jolla Music Society kicks off an intimate festival. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Many young people are learning how to navigate their mental health in the wake of the pandemic, but anxiety in kids in particular is on the rise. The number of young people experiencing high-level clinical anxiety doubled since the pandemic, and according to a 2021 analysis by the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics, at least 20% of youth worldwide face symptoms of anxiety. The middle grade novel, The Gray, looks at the realities of middle schoolers struggling with anxiety. It follows 11-year-old Sasha, who spends a summer in the country with his widowed aunt and as an escape from his daily life. Disconnected from technology, he finds new ways to cope with his anxiety, which includes caring for a horse, coincidentally named The Gray. This is local author Chris Barron's third novel. He won the San Diego Writers Award in 2021 and is also a professor and coordinator of the English Center at San Diego City College. Chris, welcome back to Midday Edition. Thank you so much for having me. So happy to be here. Glad to have you. So the title, The Gray, is how the lead Sasha refers to episodes of anxiety he experiences. Could you tell us more about The Gray and what it means to Sasha? 
Yeah, I think um, for Sasha, the gray is like this fog. Things get foggy for him when he experiences these episodes of anxiety and the world itself kind of, you know, the, the gray rolls over him and it changes the way things look, the way things taste and the way he's able to function and deal with things. And he can't totally understand it. It's almost like he enters a different world. And all your books are, are very personal and the gray is really no different. Where did the inspiration for the gray first come from? Yeah, you're right. I mean, <laughs> definitely all my books are personal. I, I always tell my students, you know, like, you have to write what you know. And I know that's almost a cliche in writing and for writing teachers, but I think it's really true. We write from our experiences and then we use fiction, um, at least I do, to explore the truths of that situation and to see where and explore where things can go. For the gray, it really does come from a time in my life where you know, I grew up in an artist family and lived in New York City, just like Sasha does in the gray. And my mom, as the artist, decided we need to move to upstate New York to live in nature. And that's what happened to me. Uh, we, I left the city life. I went to PS6. And by that summer, we were living in upstate New York. And it was really challenging if you've ever had to move. And I think of kids out there have to move. And I know kids are resilient. Mm -hmm. um, I was as resilient as a kid could be. Uh, but it's difficult. And it causes a lot of, you know, sort of mini traumas and changes in friends and environment. Uh, and so a lot of, of what I experienced when, when, when I moved were things that my characters experienced. Like in The Magical Imperfect, it was selective mutism. So that's some of, the, some of the manifestations of anxiety that occurred for me was selective mutism and also this, this sense of anxiety of being in a new place and how to function. Yeah, no, I can imagine. And I can also imagine, you know, it being tough to process those things as a child, you know, um, you know, and the pandemic has really exacerbated a lot of the anxieties and, and societal pressures young people face. How is it different for kids now who cope with anxiety, you think, um, compared to when you first uh, were growing up with it? Yeah, I think that's it's a really good point. I, I think when, when I was growing up, you know, in the 80s, um, we didn't understand mental health concerns the way we do now. And thankfully, there are so many good professionals now for, and, and teachers and just parents who are aware of these issues. But I think we were aware of them then. But for me, you know, it was it was more of a, 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 a phrase you'd hear it'd be like toughen up or deal with it. And it was the same root of love from parents and, and people who were caring for the kids, but we didn't always understand the gravity of it. And I think today, thankfully, we have a lot more resources, but I think in the, these core pandemic years, there's this like void that opened up and a lot of kids are experiencing, you know, this transition back to maybe what once was and that there's sort of this no new normal. And so how do they fit in? And it's causing, causing more anxiety than ever. So like I said, thankfully, we have more help and more understanding, but we also have many more cases of kids dealing with this and grappling with these concerns. Mm. We'd like to have you read a brief excerpt from your book. Could we have you introduce it to us? Absolutely. Yeah, this is a, a part in the beginning of the book where Sasha is reluctantly leaving the city after agreeing with his parents and his therapist that a break from everything is what's really needed. But of course, he doesn't want to go. So he's in the car and he's heading out to upstate New York with his mom. And she's, you know, he's remembering his, his wonderful times out there when he was younger, seeing things and starting to remember. But his mom, of course, is really, really worried. So she starts to 
sort of press him to remember some of the, the techniques for dealing with his anxiety. We passed the huge horse ranch, long pastures spread out against the hills, small clearings and creeks. I start to imagine the crunch of leaves under my feet. It's like the forest wants me to remember it. Remember, Mom says, listen to Aunt Ruthie, enjoy riding horses, and if things get tough, promise me you'll try using the grounding technique. I sigh. The grounding technique is the newest thing we've been working on. It's supposed to help me when my anxiety feels out of control. I pull out a folded index card out of my pocket, that one that we worked on together, and I read it out loud to practice and to make her happy. Five, look. Look around for five real things you can see and say them out loud. Four, pay attention to your body and think of four things you can feel. Easy things, socks, the soft chair, whatever else. Three, listen. Listen for three sounds, maybe traffic or someone typing, your best friend's voice, or the sound of a power-up in a video game. Two, smell. Say two things out loud that you can smell, good or even bad. One, taste. Say one thing you can taste. Maybe it's pizza or toothpaste or Sour Patch Kids. And then take another deep belly breath. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. I'm speaking with local author Chris Barron about his middle grade novel, The Gray. And Chris, I'm curious about your background as an educator and in writing. You've been teaching for more than 20 years. How does that influence the work you write? (laughs) Every time I hear that, I think, oh, my gosh, it's been that long. (laughs) I, I think it's a huge influence um, for what I write. I, I absolutely, you know, love my job and, and I, working here at San Diego City College as an English professor and, and writing uh, the writing center here. And I, I've definitely been influenced over the years by my students. You know, I've always wanted to be a writer. Even as a kid, when I wrote my my gripping novel uh, at five years old, The Hungry Lion, which was one of those folded pieces of paper with yarn stitched into it and, you know, about a lion that bumped into a tree. Um, and I, you know, on to my MFA, but when I was doing my MFA in, in creative writing, I fell in love with teaching. And so I've been teaching here and, you know, and writing poems and essays and, and articles, but I've been deeply influenced by the lives of the students here at City College, which are some of the most diverse students um, and incredible people I've ever met. And they're, each of them has such a unique story. And, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm just it's a real privilege to be able to help them write their stories. Um, and so as a writer, I just realized that the thing that has connected us the most between me and my students and, and me and even my own kids is storytelling. So it's always been in me and on me and then now through me with novels. Um, so a few years ago, they started to write. It really was my students who, who helped me um, be inspired. You know, they would, I would never try to make my students hear my writing but they would ask me, like, what are you working on? Because I'm making them write. And, and so just a lot of really fun experiences, uh, collaborating, sharing with them as they shared with me. I want to go back to mental health. You mentioned the main protagonist in The Magical Imperfect has selective mutism. And in The Gray, Sasha struggles with generalized anxiety disorder with occasional panic. Are mental health and anxiety a common through line in your books? Yeah, absolutely. And the magical imperfect, um, selective mutism, and you know, chronic illness, and even in all of me, you know, with with body image issues, I think it's a through line because I think that so many kids out there are grappling with these kinds of things, and I think it's important to to normalize these things. Uh, you know, mental health concerns are not 
you know, huge red flags that mean that a kid can't live a happy, great life. It, we're all dealing with things together. And the point is we can move forward with in community, um, in healing, in coping with the things that affect us and, and be productive and have adventures and have a great life and do all kinds of things. So I think it's, it's often, you know, important to help readers feel seen. Um, because I know as a kid, I didn't always feel seen for the things I was dealing with. And because of that, I didn't know how to talk about them. What do you think about how children's literature is covering topics of mental health, like anxiety and neurodiversity? I know they can be a big tool in helping. Yeah, I think we've, we're seeing right now um, just an amazing time in children's literature for exploring uh, characters and situations and stories from typically underrepresented authors. Um, you know, now there's, it's just like almost like a renaissance of these stories. And there's so many good resources out there. A Novel Mind Kid Lit, which is, you know, a website just has a database of stories that deal with these issues. And, you know, there's, there's a sense of like, are these topical stories? But it's not just that mental health is the topic and that's all the story's about. It's just about kids in the context of their lives, living them out. And, you know, they're, they just happen to be dealing with some of these things. And I, and I love that for children's literature because, you know, you can still have an amazing, fun adventure story or a hilarious story, but maybe one of the kids is dealing with anxiety in that story and that's okay. What role do you think our community should play in helping kids with anxiety? I think we all have to come together. I mean, I, it's a great question. And I, I'm looking at my own, like, you know, family community and, you know, I see our kids coming out of pandemic years um, and dealing with what they're dealing with. And we're all sort of in it together. So I, I think if the community can, can have more understanding, can, can take time with each other, if we have a little more mercy and patience with one another, that will go a long way. But I, but I also think, you know, finding ways to fill the gaps. So a lot of the processes that we've, we're used to, especially saying education, have been interrupted. And those kids are interrupted. And so we need to build little bridges over those gaps. And so whether it's helping kids sign up for school or maybe we need to allow kids to read other kinds of books, maybe not just the classics, but lots of new books. I think we need to invest in libraries and, and those kinds of things that just create more of a community feeling, you know, that can allow kids to feel a part of the community and less alone, because that's really crucial in dealing with any anxiety is invitation into community. I've been speaking with local author Chris Barron about his new middle grade book, The Gray. Barron will speak more about the novel with author Sally Pla at the book Catapult on Thursday, August 3rd. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Love being here. Coming up, a Russian tale of morality and murder takes the stage at the Old Globe as a comedy. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. 
We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. You know, Russian literature can be intimidating. It serves up dense volumes with lots of suffering. But this summer, the Old Globe Theater commissioned Crime and Punishment, a comedy, to find out how this classic tale of murder and morality became a 90-minute romp. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando spoke with playwrights Gordon Greenberg and Steve Rosen. Stephen Gordon, you have created a show called Crime and Punishment, a comedy. Now, anyone familiar with Dostoevsky's novel knows it is not a comedy. It deals with murder and a young man who has committed a crime and suffers moral anguish from this. So how did the idea of turning this into a comedy come about? And Gordon, why don't you start? I think when Barry asked us to adapt a great piece of uh, world literature for the stage and gave us kind of free reign to talk about different possibilities. We looked for what we thought was the grimmest and most serious piece of literature. Because as you know, the more seriously something takes itself, the easier it is to send it up. So that was our way in. And Steve? Well, we were also in the midst, really, of the pandemic had just sort of started. And as Gordon said, when Barry Edelstein reached out to say, we'd love you to adapt another classic work of literature to the stage in a, in a funny way, and the way that you guys like to do it, which is a sort of a hyper-theatrical, small cast, lo-fi feeling way, we both were feeling uh, particularly probably trapped in our homes and uh, with the weight of the world upon us from all the things that were happening that were outside of our control. And so when we started sort of looking into the themes and the ideas in Crime and Punishment, it seemed like something we could use the moment we were in to try and express ourselves emotionally, but also a parallel to what, we were ha- what was happening to us and in the modern world. So what was your first introduction to Dostoevsky and what was kind of your initial reaction to his kind of writing and his storytelling? I think in high school, when we were assigned it, I probably read the Cliff Notes because it seemed terrifying and intimidatingly long and sad. And yet at the same time, I think there was something at its core that spoke to me and maybe it was my great-great-grandparents' Russian backgrounds and the sense of Eastern European despair and figuring out how to find hope on the other side of, of trauma and difficulty. And these are all people in, like Les Miserables, I mean, these are people who are facing abject poverty and physical decrepitude and all kinds of challenges. And ultimately, in Dostoevsky's version, I think he looked to religion to be the answer, a certain spirituality um, that comes through the character of Sonia in the book, who was almost a Mary Magdalene-like character. I believe she was a prostitute. In our adaptation, we've taken some of the same core ideas, but translated them into what amounts to a pretty new story. So it's really a riff on crime and punishment as opposed to a straight-up adaptation. And Steve? 
people in my family have always been voracious readers and they were readers of the, you know, all of the great works. And I was always more of a classics illustrated kid where I would get my Dostoevsky from the comic book version of it. But my introduction to Dostoevsky was my brother coming home from college when he really got into reading European literature and he came back with Dante's Inferno and Crime and Punishment. And I just remember seeing these big, thick books with these very dour-looking people on the front of them looking so miserable. I was like, who wants to read this book? But his explanation was that, like, these are actually great. The themes are amazing. It's like this tells us that the times that we live in now are not so different than the times that they were then. And this guy was saying things that I still identify with today. And so in a weird way, it was, it was my brother introducing me to the power of this kind of classic literature uh, that sort of got me first into the, into the world of Dostoevsky. Yeah, so it was when my brother came back from college, that was it. And you mentioned that this is not strictly an adaptation of Crime and Punishment. And I saw that this was kind of a riff on Russian literature in general. So how did you kind of pack all this into a 90-minute comedy? Well, we end up throwing in everything but the kitchen sink, as they say. Uh, really, we looked for how to take the story of Rodia Raskolnikov, who's the uh, central protagonist of the original novel, and lift it to a world that lives a foot off the ground, as we say. So there are all kinds of crazy characters swirling around him, from the brothers Karamazov to the three sisters, and they show up in all manner of silly moments. However, I should say, not to sell this short, that this really does take the core of what that book was about and manifest it in a new version of the narrative that speaks to the idea that human experience is the same and that the ideas and challenges that the characters were facing them are still very much alive. The idea of moral relativity, the idea of justifying for ourselves the way we live, whether it's passing by an unhoused person on the street and being able to just walk right by and understand that there are certain inequities that is in life and somehow we convince ourselves that this is the fair and just way to live. And when there are arguments on either side of any question, be it philosophical, political, what have you, usually both sides of the argument are very much convinced that they're in the right. And that's what we're kind of getting inside of. How does someone fall into that trap. And we see it all the time now in tech geniuses, or maybe not geniuses like Elizabeth Holmes or the We Crashed guy. There's a whole spate of television shows about it in the last year or two. Um, so this kind of explores someone in a similar situation. Uh, the axe murder of the original has been replaced with a different type of murder, there is still a murder at the center of this. And how one gets to the place where they convince themselves it's okay to murder someone and it's for the greater good, that there is net good to a bad or damaging decision that we make. So that's what's fascinating about this and the way it affects everyone in his life. This guy who's telling himself, I'm doing this for everyone else. I'm doing this for the world. Someone like Napoleon, you know, he had to kill people. There was collateral damage, but look, his, his legacy lives on in our civil codes and our bakeries. <laughs> and that's what's at the core of this. Yeah, well said, Gordon. I don't think I can say it much better than 
in the play that he you find we all know a perfect perfectly nice people in our lives who we've always sort of seen eye to eye with ideologically and then something happens some in their lives where they start making moral and ethical compromises to explain a point of view that probably before that point they were not so comfortable with or would have been you know would have found abhorrent and and they begin acts of mental and ethical gymnastics worthy of Nadia Comaneci in order to make it all make sense in their world. Tell people what they can expect because you have a small group of actors playing a very large number of characters. They can expect a virtuosity on the stage of watching people change characters before their eyes. So it lives somewhere between Saturday Night Live and the Royal Shakespeare Company. Do you want to add anything to that, Steve? I think that you couldn't have said it better. No, it, it's uh, you know it's very theatrical. It celebrates the convention of theater. It's the kind of the, you you can expect it to see something that you can only see in a theater. A story coming to life before your eyes, people changing characters on a dime. An amazing experience in the round as well. So that's one of the other fun challenges of this show, and and the joy in watching Gordon stage something where basically you can sit on any side of this, and you're basically transplanted into the world of Raskolnikov and the world that, that, that we've created here. And it's going to be a really fun night at the theater, that I know. And do you hope that on some level, while this is entertaining people, that somewhere it may click in their brain that they want to go and explore some of these actual novels or some of Dostoevsky's work? That would be swell. I mean, I feel like if by the end they've come out, the audience having been moved a little bit and having uh, something to think about that illuminates something in our own lives and, and the ways that divides pop up between people, between factions, then it's a big win because we know it's a lot of fun. We know it's, it's silly in places. It features puppets, but by the end, it does actually address something quite real and human. And uh, I think there's an opportunity for this to feel really good on both levels, both a comedic level and a a literary human level. What I hope more than anything, aside from people rekindling their interest and love of classic literature, is that we'll encourage more people to come to the theater and come to the Old Globe because the work that they're putting up there right now is so exciting and the fact that they're commissioning new works at a time when so many regional theaters are really struggling is such an honor and a privilege for us and a joy because nothing, I, I think I can speak for Gordon when I say that the theater is the thing that we love more than anything. And the fact that we can now bring people back and show them new things or new interpretations of old things and create new experiences is very exciting after all we've been through. I want people to bring their kids to the theater. I want teenagers to come see this and see Crime and Punishment so that they can acknowledge both the fact that like theater is really fun and I'm going to laugh my butt off, but also like you can take something, this book that I'm reading in school that may feel inaccessible to me, there is a way into it or there is a way for me to do something with it and make it more accessible in other ways, this tremendous source material. But something like this, Crime and Punishment, even the title feels like eat your vegetables. Do you know what I mean? There's a, a sense about it that seems so dramatic that it seemed like a it seemed like it was daring us to make fun of it or to find humor in it. It was actually really, it was fun to explore and find because the situations that this person 
finds himself in, the red tape he has to go through, the bureaucracy that he's got to jump and deal with, it's not very different than what we deal today at the DMV or dealing with our taxes or dealing with universities and all that sort of stuff. And so finding parallels between the humorous inconveniences that we face today, even on that sort of smaller level and applying them into this world, it was a fun challenge. Um, and whenever Gordon and I get together, we just wind up goofing around and laughing anyway. So it just seemed like a natural extension of our hanging out to say, okay, let's let's take this. Let, let, this seems impossible. Let's give this a try. Talk a little bit about creating something which to the audience feels sort of like chaotic and so much is going on and it feels like there's nothing like really controlled, but how much work and craft has to go into kind of creating a play that feels so kind of loose and free and crazy? A show like this, because there are only five people in it and there are so many scenes and so many characters and so many ideas, it's all choreographed, it's all planned. And you kind of want to give an actor all of the foundation, all of the kind of guardrails to play within. And I always say, you know, directing to me is like making a big bento box where there's all these tiny compartments that are set and that help us tell the story. But within each compartment, the actors can play every night um, and have that spontaneous combustion that can only happen live. And so there is a bit of danger because you're never sure exactly what the play is going to be on any given night. And yet you have a sense of the overall flow and thrust and certainly the staging. There is a bit of puppet dancing in this as well, I'll warn you. <laughs> a lot of puppet warnings. And we also, aside from the wonderful work that Gordon is doing staging, because he co-wrote it and he's directing the show, we have a, a tremendous company of actors who are working together as a team, supporting each other, because it, is, it isn't just about we're going to do this scene and then we go off stage is that we're going to go in this scene and then as soon as it ends, I have to grab that chair, put that here, hand this person a mustache, and then we're into the next section. So there is a great deal of choreography that has to happen in order for this to look the way that it does. And I, I, to me, I, I could never do what, what, they, what, these, what this company of actors and what this director are doing. It is so complicated, and, but so seemingly simple. You would never know how complicated it is. Well, I want to thank you very much for talking about Crime and Punishment, a comedy. Uh, just the title alone, the collision of those two phrases makes you curious to see what happens. <laughs> That's the idea. Uh, well, we hope to see you uh, at the Old Globe. We are having a, a tremendous time. The, I, I'm sure that the bar there serves vodka so you can get yourself into the mood. And yeah, bring your kids. It's going to be fun. That was Beth Accomando speaking with playwrights Gordon Greenberg and Steve Rosen. Crime and Punishment, a comedy, runs through August 20th at the Old Globe's Theater in the Round. Coming up, we'll talk about the unique artwork on display around San Diego and a chamber music festival happening this weekend. I think that the most special thing about it is that it is the most intimate form of music making. It's a conversation between individuals. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand 
is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team, Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. Welcome back to Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. For the weekend preview, the La Jolla Music Society kicks off a month-long festival of chamber music concerts. And there's also a free Shakespeare festival, miniature paper theaters, and a rock music festival in Barrio Logan. Joining me with all the details is KPBS arts producer and editor, Julia Dixon-Evans. Julia, welcome. Hi, Jade. Thanks for having me. Always glad to have you here. Let's start with Summerfest. Tell us a little bit about that. So this is, it's the 37th year that the La Jolla Music Society has been doing this festival, Summerfest. And they bring in musicians and composers from all around the world to perform all month. Um, These are smaller than normal orchestras. They range from duets to medium-sized ensembles. And it starts Friday and runs through August 26th. They do a variety of classical and older compositions with world premieres and new stuff. And most of the shows are happening in their performance spaces at the Conrad in La Jolla. And what's on your radar for this festival? There are dozens of concerts and, and not just music either. What are some of the highlights? So there is a spoken word and dance performance of Carnival of the Animals. It's this uh, traditional Saint-Saëns composition, and it's been reimagined and set in the January 6th insurrection in the Capitol Rotunda. Um, That's on August 18th. And another thing in general on my radar is a bunch of free rehearsals and workshops and discussions. Um, The discussion series is called Encounters. And audiences can sit in on these. Most of these are during the weekdays, but it's still a great opportunity to take a long lunch break, listen to some free performances, or see behind the scenes a little bit. And the next free rehearsal coming up is Tuesday morning. And I'm also really looking forward to this year's composer in residence. It's Thomas Addis, and I love his work. And he will be here performing and being featured as a curator as well. And the festival's director, Inan Barnaton, performs all around the world, uh, but you actually caught up with him. Yeah, so he is a world-renowned pianist and curator, and this is his fifth year as the Summerfest music director. But he had been coming back to perform in the festival for years before that. So um, he performs around the world, but definitely has made this creative home here in San Diego. And his theme this year is the great unknown. And that's a celebration of all the sort of surprises that happen in these festivals. And when we spoke about the festival, I, I started by asking him to explain what exactly chamber music is and how the roots of that, that genre fit into this festival. Chamber music comes, the name chamber music comes from the fact that it was performed in a chamber. It, it was the the intimate form of music making that was originally in people's houses or, or in courts of, of, of the palace. And as such, it was the most accessible to people. People could play in their own living rooms. Um, people could hear it at parties. and to this day, I think the most special thing about it is that it is the most intimate form of music making. It's a conversation between individuals. And that intimacy transfers to the audience, I think, especially at the Conrad where we perform, which is so 
spectacular, both acoustically and, and architecturally, so that everybody can feel part of that conversation. So chamber music in some ways is the most direct form of musical communication. So the opening night this year is this Friday, and you're not announcing the program, the repertoire for that show. Yeah, this part of your theme, The Great Unknown. Can you talk about that decision to keep it a surprise, at least what you're authorized to tell us? <laughs> opening night for me was, I decided the most important thing, I think, in a festival in some ways is trust. And, you know, the, the audience comes and trusts me to curate a journey for them. And I think that's one of the most important things in radio as well. I mean, when we, the more and more music we have, the more and more access we have, the more important the curation is, the more important that to have somebody choose something that will take you through a journey or something. Oh, listen to this. So I decided to really lean into it and create a, a, an opening night that is a, in some ways an omakase menu, if, you, if you're familiar with Japanese uh, sushi restaurants. It's, omakase means trust me. And I'm, I'm so thrilled that the audience has responded and we're practically sold out for, for opening night. And, and they're, they're in for some real, really great treats. I can't talk about specifics. <laughs> I can tell you, though, that it's led by one of the great musicians that I know, which is uh, the former music director of the New York Philharmonic, Alan Gilbert, uh, who is here to conduct a, a large ensemble. So the, the, the evening will uh, go from two people to basically a chamber orchestra. We'll have a symphony, a concerto, and some many, many surprises. So that's... Uh, about as much as I can say. <laughs> and, and this year's resident composer is Thomas Addis. Uh, what can you tell us about his work? Thomas Addis, to me, is the number one composer working today. To me, if I, if I had to name one composer that I think will be still played in 100, 200, 300 years that is working today, Tom would be at the very top of the list. He... I was just telling somebody in in uh, from the audience uh, from our from our board saying I hope that you know what a big deal it is to have him here because to me he is he is the best and I've based two of my recordings my solo recordings actually on uh, solo pieces by his the way that I discovered his music was years ago I I listened to a piece called Darkness Visible That piece, he, he in that piece he takes an old song from the 1600s by John Dowland and transforms it into, without changing a single note or a single rhythm, transforms it into a hypnotizing, current, meaningful work for piano. And that act of making something your own like that 
just blew my mind, and I based a whole recording out of it. Another concert that caught my attention, it's a bit later in the festival on August 25th. It's called Unsilenced Voices. Can you tell me about this program and some of these composers? One of the reasons I got when I was thinking, why are some composers or pieces unknown? Or why were they unknown? Uh, it got me thinking that some of it happened because they were silenced, suppressed, or somewhat uh, sidetracked uh, and that happened because of uh, many reasons partly some of it was because the composer was a woman at a time where women composers were not allowed like Fanny Mendelssohn uh, who was overshadowed by her famous brother Felix Mendelssohn and basically not really allowed to compose much and she wrote this beautiful string quartet Clara Schumann uh, did the same thing uh, with her uh, husband, uh, Robert Schumann, uh, overshadowed her. But some composers were silenced by regimes, Shostakovich being the most famous example of a, of a composer who wrote music that the Soviet regime found unacceptable and, and silenced him and, and, and uh, he spent much of his composing career trying to fight that or find a balance of being both celebrated and silenced. Um, and we have a composer who was silenced by the uh, the Nazi regime, a, a Jewish composer who wrote his piece and a phenomenal and very lighthearted piece, actually, while he was in the concentration camp. and. So, and so forth. It's uh, every piece on that program in some ways was had a tough time getting to us, uh, but it's they're all just phenomenal pieces. Actually, two pieces, <laughs> two pieces on this program uh, were written uh, in concentration camps. Uh, Messian's uh, Quartet for the End of Time, famously, even though Messian was not Jewish, but he was in a concentration camp during the, the Second World War and. Uh, he wrote this quartet while in the camp, and it was, had its premiere by camp prisoners. And we'll hear one of the movements from from that piece, the, the clarinet, the, the solo clarinet movement. We also have Schulhoff, who is a, the, that is a Jewish composer who wrote five pieces for string quartet that are just delightful. Uh, and uh, he also died in a, a concentration camp. Uh, one of the voices that really would have been much, much more well-known had they not been silenced. Out of curiosity, do you know how those works were discovered, the, the Schulhoff and Particular. How was that retrieved? The certain musicians took it upon themselves to resurrect some of these uh, composers, some of these voices. And through the years, we've come to, to know more and more. In fact, we have another one during the festival by Gidon Klein, another composer who would have been much more well-known had he not died in a, in a uh, concentration camp. 
so certain musicians, um, James Conlon, for example, the the conductor, has taken upon himself to uh, resurrect a lot of these pieces. And um, I think through the years we just it's word of mouth and it's uh, and and it's festivals like these that that take it upon themselves like this one uh, take upon themselves to to really discover music that deserves to be heard. That was Enon Barnaton from the La Jolla Music Society Summerfest. Opening night for that is Friday. And just to remind you, you're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman, and I'm speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans about arts and culture events happening this weekend. Uh, Julia, let's talk about miniature theaters. What do you know about this annual paper theater festival at UC San Diego? Yeah, so a paper theater or a toy theater is basically a small tabletop-sized handmade little theater set. It sometimes looks like a kind of an opened-up pop-up book. Uh, Sometimes they look more like a diorama in a shoebox, and sometimes they're more elaborate and unusual. But the practice came about in Victorian-era London when a play, the Playhouse, would sell souvenir posters and little kits so that families could take them home and cut them up and build their own sets so that they could reenact the play themselves at home on their kitchen table. And according to the UC San Diego Library and Scott Paulson, who runs the festival, this hobby is seeing a bit of a comeback. And Paulson's been putting on this festival for 22 years now. It's part art exhibit. So in some display cases in the UCSD Geisel Library, right in the lobby, Uh, Some paper theaters are on view now through August 15th. Uh, That's open during regular library hours. But the festival also centers on a couple of performances. And there's one show left. It's Friday at noon. Um, It's free. And it's a play called Lady Ada Steampunk Heroine. And it's created by Paulson himself. Oh, wow. And next, there's a free Shakespeare festival happening at Southwestern College. How can we go and check out that play? So we're in the middle of that festival now, too. This one started last weekend and continues this weekend and next, wrapping up on August 5th. And they're producing two Shakespeare plays. There's Hamlet and The Comedy of Errors. That one follows two sets of twins separated at birth, so there's lots of mistaken identity hijinks. And these are both free plays. They're performed by the esteemed faculty and students at the Southwestern Theater Department, and it's at one of very few places to see live theater in the South Bay. And this weekend, A Comedy of Errors is at 2 p.m. on Saturday and Sunday, and then Hamlet is 7 o'clock, 7 p.m., Friday, Saturday, and Sunday nights. And you need to RSVP online, and some of these are already starting to sell out. And finally, the Bad Vibes Good Friends Festival takes place in Barrio Logan. There's music, art, and cocktails. Uh, Sounds like a good time. (laughs) You're right. It's a two-day music and art festival, um, and they've paired music with visual art projections as well as cocktails that match the theme. It's Thursday and Friday night at Corazon del Barrio. Uh, That's the former La Bodega Gallery. It's now mostly a performance space. Tonight's set is kind of an eclectic set. It has some cumbia and contemporary Colombian music. And then locals, the Fresh Veggies Microbrass. And Friday night's show features this garage rock band from L.A. called Wand. 
And then local indie punk band Drug Hunt, they describe themselves as a bizarro quintet. And also performing is the Joshua Tree-based This Lonesome Paradise and a cross-border sound art ensemble, New Tongues. And yeah, both nights they're doing live visuals. So these are going to be video artworks and projections from artists that run alongside the music. Tickets are $20 in advance for either night. You can find details on these and more arts events or sign up for Julia's weekly KPBS arts newsletter at kpbs.org slash arts. I've been speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon Evans. Julia, have a great weekend. Thank you, Jade. You too. Share your thoughts on today's show at 619-452-0228. You can leave a message or you can email us at midday at kpbs.org. Don't forget to watch Evening Edition tonight at 5 for in-depth reporting on San Diego issues. And listen in to the roundtable tomorrow at noon. If you ever miss a show, of course, you can find the Midday Edition podcast on all platforms. Before we go, I want to thank the Midday Edition team. Juliana Joaquin Domingo, Harrison Patino, and Andrew Bracken, with the help of Ariana Clay, are the producing team. Beth Accomando and Julia Dixon-Evans produce the art segments. Our technical directors are Rebecca Chacon and Adrian Villalobos. The theme music you hear is from San Diego's own Surefire Soul Ensemble. I'm Jade Hindman. Thanks for listening, and have a great weekend, everyone. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.